Cause we got the alternative energy Molecular free autonomy And welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne And heard nationally on the Community Radio Network Hello and welcome to the Radioactive Show The ocean is the foundation of life It supplies the air we breathe and the food we eat It regulates our climate and weather The ocean is our planet's greatest reservoir of biodiversity. That was UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres as he called for greater action to protect oceans in his message to mark World Oceans Day. I'm Michaela and on today's program we'll be looking at nuclear peace and energy issues related to the ocean for World Oceans Day, 8th of June. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Jim Green, Friends of the Earth Australia's national anti-nuclear campaigner about plans for the dumping of radioactive wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear power plant disaster at sea. I'll bring you an interview from 3CR's Tuesday Breakfast about how the impact of rising ocean levels on the Torres Strait Islands has seen two First Nations leaders, Uncle Pabai Pabai and Uncle Paul Kabai, bring the Australian climate case against the Commonwealth Government of Australia over its failure to prevent climate change. Finally, we will hear from Marybeth Councillor Sue Bolton about the community action in July, calling for an end to the AUKUS Pact and to address the climate crisis. Jim, thanks so much for joining us on the Radioactive Show. The Japanese government and TEPCO plans for releasing radioactive wastewater from the Fukushima disaster into the oceans. Where's it up to at the moment? Well, even now, 12 years after the meltdowns and fires and explosions at the Fukushima nuclear power plant, they're still generating about 100,000 litres of radioactively contaminated water every day at the site. And that comes from two sources. Firstly, they have to pump water into the stricken reactors to prevent further uncontrolled nuclear fission reactions and meltdowns and potentially fires. And the second source is groundwater going from the mountains to the ocean and that gets contaminated and some of that is collected. So they've got a huge amount of this water. It's up to 1.4 billion litres now. And TEPCO, the government, the, the company that runs the Fukushima plant, uh, with the support of the Japanese government, they just want to dump all this contaminated water into the ocean, firstly by processing it to remove some of the radionuclides, uh, but it will still be contaminated and it's generating a huge amount of controversy. Yes, and I understand that a lot of concern is coming from fisher folk who are obviously going to be directly impacted. What's happening there? Yeah, that's right. The fishing industry was completely killed off by the Fukushima disaster for obvious reasons. And uh, for months and some years after the disaster, they were catching fish that had extraordinary levels of radioactive contamination in them. Um, uh, Gradually, the the fishing industry has recovered. It's only to about a third of the, uh, the economic value that it used to be. But now they fear that this plant to dump radioactive wastewater into the ocean will give give them another hit and potentially even kill off the local fishing industry around Fukushima. So they're furious about it and they're doing everything they can to stop it. 
And there's a Korean coalition, the People's Action to Stop Dumping of Fukushima Radioactive Water, who are organising internationally. That's right. Um, there has been one shift over the past year or so. Um, there's still terrific grassroots opposition in Korea and in many other countries. But South Korea now has a pro-nuclear government uh, and that's a real problem. And I suspect that uh, formal opposition from the South Korean government will die down if, if, if it hasn't already. But still, there's this grassroots network of, of people uh, in, in Korea and elsewhere who are still fighting hard. Jim, what about people living in the Pacific have obviously borne the brunt of a lot of nuclear activities across a long period of time. What are they saying about these plans? Well, they're furious. They're probably leading the opposition to this plan to dump the radioactive wastewater at the moment. And for example, the head of the Pacific Islands Forum, Henry Puna, uh, has been very active and he wrote recently, and I'm quoting, that continuing with those discharge plans at this time is simply inconceivable. And he goes on to talk about how it discriminates against Pacific Islanders and uh, risks their health. Uh, there's another Pacific organisation called uh, Yongsawara Pacific. And uh, the Pacific Islands Forum also commissioned some independent scientific research, which is highly revealing and highly critical of the BS being presented by the Japanese government and supported by the International Atomic Energy Agency. So, uh, yeah, it's awesome to see all this activity from Pacific Islanders. They certainly don't have the support of the IAEA, that, which is a UN organisation, but they have won the support of UN special rapporteurs who have repeatedly visited and investigated and expressed opposition to the dumping of, of radioactive water into the Pacific. And what they're basing this plan on is the idea that the ocean will just be able to dilute these wastes down to levels that won't be harmful to the environment. What are the lead scientists saying on these issues? Yeah, well, there are about six, 60 different types of, of radionuclides in this wastewater. They've only been testing for about nine of them. Uh, sometimes the Japanese government and TEPCO claim that it will only one radioactive isotope will remain, and that's called tritium. It's an isotope of hydrogen, and they claim that's the only one they can't remove from the wastewater. But there's a huge amount of scepticism from that. There are the government's scientific testing and TEPCO scientific testing just doesn't accord with some uh, independent testing. And there's been really strong opposition from uh, a US organisation called the National Association of Marine Laboratories, and that comprises a hundred different member groups. And they've done uh, they've done independent research and have strongly opposed it. And to use their words, they say the plan quote is based on the fact that there is a lack of, of adequate and accurate scientific data supporting Japan's assertion of safety. Furthermore, there's an abundance of data demonstrating serious concerns about releasing radioactively contaminated water, end quote. So that's really strong opposition from them uh, and other scientific bodies as well. And some of, some of it gets down to trust. Well, a lot of it is trust, I think. 
you know, it would be theoretically possible to manage this release of radioactive wastewater to minimise the risks, but that would presume that we're going to trust TEPCO and no-one trusts TEPCO. We're going to trust Japanese government regulatory organisations, even though they're just as criminal as TEPCO itself, and it would assume that we trust the International Atomic Energy Agency, even though it's got a track record of promoting uh, the nuclear industry and turning an eye to it, turning a blind eye to all its problems. Yes, and I understand that this dumping of the Fukushima water into the Pacific doesn't comply with the international regulations, such as the International Atomic Energy Agency's safety standards for protecting people and the environment. So if they plan to go ahead, what power would the International Atomic Energy Agency have to stop them even if they were interested to do that? It has none. It's the most disgraceful organisation. Even if we go back before Fukushima, the IAEA did occasional safety inspections of the Japanese nuclear industry and found that it was inadequate. So the Japanese nuclear industry simply stopped IAEA safety inspections and there was never any complaints from the IAEA or any criticism of the obvious corruption in the Japanese nuclear industry so the IAEA has to take some responsibility for the Fukushima disaster and these days the IAEA is doing what it always done it's uh, it's promoting the Japanese industry's plan to dump this wastewater into the ocean and it claims to be doing independent scientific research, but it's questionable. And there's one interesting example of that, which is uh, some of the independent research detected an isotope called tellurium-127. And the only way this isotope could possibly exist in the wastewater is if there's ongoing nuclear fission criticality within the reactors in the uh, stricken reactors in the nuclear fuel which is melted down. So that's a highly troubling finding that this isotope has been found in the wastewater. But the IAEA never provided any clear responses. And in fact, the IAEA simply cut off communications with the independent scientific panel which made this finding. So there's just so many questions and so few answers and absolutely no reason to trust any of the organisations involved in this plan. Pretty scary situation. So recognising that Australian produce uranium was in the reactors at Fukushima, it implies a sense of responsibility because those materials came from this continent what, if any, engagement is the Australian government having? And are we still exporting uranium to Japan? Yeah, we are still exporting uranium to Japan. Mind you, they've got very little need for it at the moment. And Australia is down to two uranium suppliers, um, BHP's Roxby Downs Mine and the Beverly Mine, also in South Australia. So... Uh, there are still uranium export channels open. I'm not sure if there's actually uranium being exported right at the moment, but um, an Australian public health expert, Professor Tillman Ruff, has contacted the, um, the Australian government. That was that was earlier this year in March and got no response from the Australian government about 
this plan to dump radioactive wastewater into the Pacific. So it's the same old story from the Australian government, Liberal or Labor, they're just washing their hands of the whole problem and, uh, yeah, just trying to, hoping this problem will go away. So if people are wanting to take action, what are the avenues to do that? Well, there's uh, numerous petitions coming out of organisations like Friends of the Earth in Japan and Pacific Island organisations. So I would encourage people to keep an eye out for them. Uh, Certainly if people uh, get the uh, occasional updates from the Nuclear Free Collective of Friends of the Earth in Melbourne, can sign up for them on the web and uh, we would certainly be promoting any and all of those petitions. And finally, we are in our Radiothon fundraising drive to keep 3CR Community Radio on the air. Why would you be encouraging people to support the Radioactive Show and the 3CR Radiothon? Uh, because it's got a decades-long history. Is it 40 years now, Makeda? 47. <laughs> 47, wow. Um, Well, it's an amazing resource and it's more important than ever because the mainstream media is crumbling all around us. You know, we used to have the Fairfax papers doing serious journalism and they're not around anymore. The Murdoch papers are even worse than ever. Uh, And so it's more important than ever that we've got independent and credible sources of information and the Radioactive Show has been doing a spectacular job for 47 years. You're tuned to The Radioactive Show, produced in the studios of 3CR in Fitzroy on the unceded lands of the Kulin Nation and shared across the continent thanks to the Community Radio Network. We were just speaking with Dr Jim Green from Friends of the Earth Australia and the best link to find his work is nuclear.fo.org.au. It is indeed Radiothon time and the current team of AC, Crunch and I are excited to be bringing you a live show next week so please ring in pledge your support and donate to keep us on the airwaves we're really grateful to have this space to share information and events relating to nuclear peace and energy and to share the voices of people that you might not hear from otherwise we have a crowd raiser so if you want an online option go to givenow.com.au forward slash CR forward slash radioactive. Next up, we'll hear Leela Baptist from Tuesday Breakfast interviewing Isabel Renecki about the Australian climate case. And we're on 3CR, joined by Isabel Renecki to talk about the Australian climate case. Good morning, Isabel. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for joining us. So can you briefly break down the Australian climate case against the Commonwealth Government? How did this case come to be and what is its basis? This case is being brought by two Gunnamulgul men in the Torres Strait, Uncle Pabai and Uncle Paul, and their communities in the outer islands of the Torres Strait, uh, Saibai and Boigu. This case came about because the communities here in the Torres Strait are just really passionate about protecting their homelands, their culture, their lands and seas from the impacts of climate change that are being caused by the Australian government. And so what they've decided to do is sue the Australian government in a class action, basically arguing that the government has a duty of care to protect Torres Strait Islander people, way of life, 
lands and seas due to something called the Torres Strait Treaty that was signed by the Australian government with Papua New Guinea in the 70s. They also argue that Australia is causing climate change. We know that Australia is. It's party to the Paris Agreement, which in which the Australian government agrees that it is causing climate change and has responsibility to, to fix it. Um, and then what we really say and what the uncles are saying in court is that the court needs to order the government to stop causing the climate harm and in order to protect the Torres Strait from further climate catastrophe. Thanks for that background. So we know that they're bringing a case on the basis that the government is not preventing these harms. Would you be able to explain what are these central concerns brought by Uncle Pabai Pabai and Uncle Paul Kabai? What are the actual lived harms that are happening right now that have motivated this case? You can speak to anybody on the ground in the Torres Strait, particularly in Saibai and Bogu Islands, and they'll be able to tell you in great detail the changes that they've seen in their lifetime and how those changes really um, have both happened more rapidly but also are very different to the, the cultural knowledge and history that has been passed on from generation to generation. So that means literally the size of the islands that they live on are shrinking. Um, The waters have risen such that beaches that used to be much wider are now quite shallow and quite narrow. Um, There are seawalls that have been built, new seawalls, but they're already being breached by king tides. Land that has been used to grow food that we, which people eat and sell and trade with Papua New Guinea in particular um, are now not able to grow crops due to uh, saltwater acidification, which is happening when the king tides come and lay a lot of cold salt, salt water across the, the ground. One that when the waters recede, salt stays in the ground and makes it impossible to grow crops. Um, there's been really horrible uh, stories and instances that the court has witnessed this week, including um, grave sites being washed into the sea. Um, so ancestors' bones have been lost to the sea, which is obviously extremely traumatic. People are also really concerned about what long-term their future looks like for their children and their grandchildren, whether they'll be able to stay on the island, where they'll go if they have to go, but also what that actually will mean for culture and connection to country. This is a culture that's really deeply embedded in place and to be actually removed from the land and not able to practice culture in place is going to be absolutely devastating and what the uncles describe as a cultural genocide. Yeah, it's really devastating and some urgent issues that have been recognised by First Nations people, it seems, centrally due to this deep connection and relationship to land. So it's really important that some of these hearings are now happening on country where witnesses can be on country and show what is happening directly. These hearings started the 6th of June and are now underway in Boigu, Badu and Sabai Islands, as well as in Cairns. Can you tell us a few parts of the key evidence that has been brought by witnesses over the past two days? Yeah, absolutely. So as you say, being on country is just completely transformative for a case like this. It's very hard to understand the impacts until you're here. You can kind of, you know, understand them mentally, I suppose, but really understanding through sitting with people and talking with people and really visibly seeing the impacts on their life and how important that that is, is extraordinarily moving and I hope has had an impact on the judge. Um, some of the uh, some of the evidence that the judge has seen over the past couple of days have included traditional sites, including the Tree of Skulls and Tree of Spies uh, in Boigu Island, 
Um, the judge has been shown the seawall where water's breached. The judge has been taken around to the southern beaches of Boigu by a dinghy and banana boat to see um, how those campsites have also been affected by increasing water levels, um, as well as to traditional ceremonial burial sites. Um, that really looks like the judge in a pair of shorts and a, and a short sleeve shirt um, and a big hat <laughs> walking around the islands and, and sitting and hearing from um, community members. We also had a beautiful experience because the kids came down from school and sat on mats and, and watched the proceedings as well. So it's really an important moment for communities um, to be heard and to have their power really listened to and, and their knowledge respected. Yeah, it sounds really important that that's happening outside of a courtroom. If this case is successful, what changes might we expect to see implemented as a result? This case is really the be-all and end-all of climate litigation. If it is successful at the highest order, it will permanently change Australia's approach to climate change. So what that means is that the court could order the government to stop causing climate change harm in the Torres Strait. And the way that the government can stop causing harm in the Torres Strait is by adopting emissions reduction targets that are in line with the best available science. So what we've got in Australia right now is emissions reduction targets of 43% reduction by 2030. But actually what we need, according to the science, is a 75% reduction in emissions by that same date, by 2030. People may have also heard of net zero by by 2050, and that was legislated by the former government. And what we've actually needed based on the science and what the Torres Strait needs based on the science is, is net zero by 2035. So that's really the, the overarching highest order goal of the case, and that's the only real way that we will be able to stop the harm spinning out of control in the Torres Strait and lead to absolute devastation. Um, at, a, at another order, what we've actually got is before we get to that, but if we don't get to that point of, of that ultimate goal of just stopping the, the, the climate getting worse by stopping pollution, there are also needs for the Australian government to actually put in place measures to protect people today, so better seawalls, um, disaster relief services and so on, um, to make sure that people are actually safe while the climate is at its point now and before it spins further out of control. Right, so this is a groundbreaking case that is really going to impact everyone globally and nationally. It's one of those cases where, again, you know, Torres Strait Islanders have led for Australia um, for a long time through Marbo's famous decision case, but also, you know, they, they do active biosecurity work every single day here in the Torres Strait, protecting the mainland from, you know, hazards that can come across from international waters. So, you know, they really are leaders for the whole country and, yeah, I'm very grateful to be able to work with them. Yeah, that's right. I think this is a good moment to recognise the strong lineage of First Nations leadership in human rights and climate litigation that has really shaped the legal climate that we have today. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much. That was Leela Baptist from 3CR's Tuesday Breakfast speaking with Isabel Renecki about the Australian climate case. And you can find out more and support the case at australianclimatecase.org.au. Our last guest for today is Sue Bolton, who has organised to get Mary Beck to declare itself a nuclear-free zone and oppose the AUKUS deal. A group of us are organising a rally against the nuclear submarines and against AUKUS uh, on Saturday the 15th of July at 
11am at Wilson Avenue, on the corner of Wilson Avenue and Sydney Road, opposite Barclay Square. And part of the reason why we're organising this rally in Brunswick is because I managed to get a motion through the Meribet Council opposing uh, nuclear submarines and declaring the Meribet Council a nuclear-free zone. It was a divided motion. It wasn't unanimous. And the right wing sort of lampooned the idea and made a joke of the whole thing. But I feel really strongly on a few, that there are a lot of reasons to oppose the nuclear submarines and AUKUS, and that is, you know, the uh, the threat of war and the threat of an arms race as a result of Australia buying these nuclear submarines. But even if they're just buying ordinary submarines and they weren't nuclear, it would still be I'd still be opposed. Um, but also, nuclear submarines mean a nuclear industry in Australia, and they'll be looking for some poor community they can bully into taking a nuclear waste dump and they'll be transporting nuclear waste through suburbs and towns and rural areas to a nuclear waste dump. And then what about $368 billion or $400 billion or whatever it ends up being to buy these submarines? What else could that money be used for? Climate crisis and housing crisis would be probably the two number one things that they, that money should be used for, not buying nuclear submarines. And so that's why we've got this rally happening in Brunswick. And in a sense, we're um, piggybacking off the motion that we managed to get through the Meribet Council, which I understand is the first council to actually get a, a motion fully against these nuclear submarines. Yeah, that's fantastic to hear. And I imagine that there would yeah, be similar activities happening in other councils. Is there any networking happening around that? Well, we're making contact with quite a wide range of groups locally and across the city. Um, we're making contact with climate groups. No AUKUS Victoria has endorsed the protest, so has Friends of the Earth, so has the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, and so has the Maritime Union, and so has the Brunswick Uniting Church. So we're still in the process of chasing endorsements and building support for the rally. And it is really important to draw the link also between the war drive and climate change, because there's not much focus on that at all. And yet, the world's militaries and weapons manufacturers contribute around 6% of global carbon emissions. I mean, that's really quite high, and the real figure is likely to be much higher than that because these various um, global climate conferences and climate agreements have a loophole, which means that governments aren't required to report greenhouse gas emissions emitted by their armed forces. So the real figure is likely to be way higher than the 6% which has been estimated. There's so many reasons to oppose this. And that's why we do need to organise these rallies and actions because there are also still some people who, you know, have probably learnt to switch off from the media because they feel like it's all bad news, all politicos talking. And so there's, I'm still finding people who aren't even aware that the government's planning to purchase nuclear submarines, don't know what the AUKUS military pact is. 
And yet these things, if they keep going, unless the government's allowed to keep going with them, will have an incredibly bad effect on everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Well, tell us the details of the rally. So it'll be Saturday the 15th of July, so the middle of next month, at 11am on the corner of Wilson Avenue and Sydney Road, Brunswick. There's a little green patch just there and it's uh, roughly opposite Barclay Square Shopping Centre. It's the southern end of Sydney Road, so it is just really a short tram ride on the number 19 tram from the city if you don't live in the area. And we're calling on people from all over the city to come and let people know about it. And also, if you're part of an organisation that would like to endorse this, that would be brilliant as well because we want this to be as big a rally as we possibly can. And we're really in the early days of an, of building this anti-war movement to try and stop the AUKUS alliance and stop the nuclear submarines. But every step we take will make this movement stronger. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks to Dr. Jim Green, Lila Baptist, Isabel Renecki, and Sue Bolton. Tune in again next week and we'd love to hear from you. It's the one time of year that we get to hear from our listeners. So please join my mum, Georgie, in ringing into the station. And of course, support this incredible work that 3CR does, bringing you independent and radical voices on the radio. There's hundreds of volunteers working away each week to make this all happen. And this is the time of year where we need the support of our listenership too. The Radioactive Show is brought to you with the support of the Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth Melbourne. And remember to put Friday 30th of June 5pm in your diary for the next art auction fundraiser at Catalyst Social Centre and our collective coordinator Sana will tell us a little bit more about that next week. Thanks again and see you then. Did you enjoy listening to that podcast? 3CR is a community radio station and you the listener are a part of that community. Right now it's our Radiothon. We need you to pitch in with a few dollars to keep the station going. We can't do it without you. It's easy. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donations really matter.